During an episode of Jeopardy this summer in June, uh, the host, uh, Mayim Bialik, asked this question to the three contestants. Matthew 6, 9 says, Our Father, which art in heaven, this be thy name. And to the three contestants, there was just silence. No answer. They didn't know the answer was hallowed. I only found this out because one of my non-Christian friends sent me a link to the video afterwards, and he said, even I knew this. The Lord's Prayer is a very well-known prayer. In fact, we, we remember it. We memorize it in older English, so even in modern translations, it's still kept in the old King James versions in many of our Bibles. It's common embedded in our culture because for many years and many seasons, there have been people who've been taught this and even other places in their lives. But this kind of declined, even these three very intelligent, very uh, well-versed, culturally versed individuals in Jeopardy didn't know the answer. It shows a decline in our culture about this prayer. And sadly, it's also a reflection as you read the statistics about prayer in the Christian's life in American churches today about the decline of prayer. And so my hope is that this series would make your relationship with Jesus stronger, more intimate, and more powerful. The kinds of things we hope that a relationship with God would be, it is discovered and and anchored in prayer. And I pray that that would happen for you, for your life, that you would grow in intimacy, grow in love, grow in strength in your faith in God, and that prayer would be more prominent in your life. And that would be true also of our church. One of the expressions of our church and values, and I would say this is aspirational, And I see this anchored strongly in some places. Is there many, many groups, especially uh, small groups of women and and mothers in our church who regularly gather to pray, the the small group of committed people to pray for our missionaries. There are are places where that's being expressed very faithfully and fervently, but it's, it's not a common thing, I would say, in our church to be dependent on the Spirit in prayer. For honest, we are much more dependent on our effort. We are much more dependent on our ability so even the ability to raise funds and money, you can see that, that that's still an expression. It, although how good that is, is an expression of our will. It's an expression of faith, yes, but I would love to see us grow in this dependence that's out of desperation for the Lord because we know we're doing things that only he can do. I pray that you would be emboldened, that we would be emboldened as a church to pray for our city, pray for those we are connected to who do not know Jesus. How many of us, We have prayed at one time for family members and friends who do not yet know Christ, and we long for them to know Jesus, and yet how many of us would admit we have given up or stopped? And it's not that we have a disconnect of intellect, that we know that God could save them. We believe that still. But it's not expressing itself in our dependence and intimacy with the Lord. I pray that prayer would be more powerful and prominent in your life and in the life of our church. Our vision of making gospel-transformed disciples of all peoples, it relies on this. This vision can only be fueled and pursued if it is grounded and propelled by prayer. Because we can't save. We can't. We cannot change hearts. We can't usher in the kingdom. We ask for God to do that, and we are the means by which he works in this world, but we're not the ones who ultimately do it. It happens. People's hearts change. The kingdom of God is ushered in on a daily basis because his people are aligning themselves to him through prayer. One of the main means in which God works 
his will in this world is by the prayers of his people. It's a powerful prayer. It's one that unleashes the power of the Holy Spirit. I love what Albert Moeller wrote in a book that he wrote uh, covering the Lord's Prayer. He says this, This short prayer turns the world upside down. Principalities and powers hear their fall. Dictators are told their time is up. Might will indeed be made right, and truth and justice will prevail. The kingdoms of this world will all pass, giving way to the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. That's why I think when the disciples were with Jesus in their longing to learn from him, they asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. Think about all the things the disciples would have asked Jesus to teach them. If I was one of the disciples and I had time to ask Jesus to teach me anything, I would have asked him to teach me how to turn water into wine. That's definitely one of the things I would have asked him to teach me. How do I make wine, Jesus? That's one of the things I would have asked him. Well, I would, maybe you would ask, how do I walk on water? Teach me to raise the dead. Teach me to cast out evil spirits. Teach me how to even recognize them. Think about all the things the disciples could have asked Jesus to teach them. And they asked him, teach us to pray. Because they saw the connection between Jesus' prayer and the way that Jesus interacted with this world. And they recognized the way that Jesus is, who he is, and what he does. That is there because of how Jesus prays. And yet I know that as we start a series on prayer, that as we long for inspiration and aspiration and hope in prayer, we have to admit prayer for every one of us, every single one of us, every person who's here, including all of our leaders, our elders, me, we struggle with prayer. It's one of the things that's so fundamental and so essential, and yet we have to admit we're all bad at it. We know we should pray. We want to pray. We admire those who pray. But so many of us feel like failures when it comes to prayer, not just by quantity, but even how and what. And so we, we see this teaching that Jesus Call, teaches us to pray and sometimes we look at that and we look at it as something that is discouraging and yet I, I, I hope as we look at this you would see that Jesus understood that this would be a struggle that even thousands of years later he would understand that we wrestle with this we struggle with this we fail at this and so even before he teaches them the manner in which they pray and with the content structures of how to pray he teaches them first how to wrestle with their struggles how not to pray. He deals with specific issues of their time, but there are a timeless principles, some very common struggles that we all have. And that's how we're going to spend our time today as we kind of introduce this series on prayers first, kind of to wrestle with the struggles that we all have. And there are two knots, two things that prayer is not, and one is, and one thing that he explains prayer is. So that's how we're going to organize our time. Two knots, prayer is not, prayer is not, and then he helps us to understand what prayer is. First, not. Prayer is not for human approval. Prayer is not for the praise of men. Look at verses 5 to 6 again. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the, at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Hypocrites comes from this word, which means play acting. They would have used this word in the Greek to describe actors in their time who play a role on stage. Playing a role here, hypocrite, is 
saying things, behaving in ways that don't represent truly who you are. Hypocrites pray not because they're after God. They're not after God's presence. They're not truly pursuing his kingdom or his will. They are pursuing their own. And they do by means of human praise and approval. In today's world with social media, it'd be like doing things, posting things, saying things for the likes and retweets and reposts, for the praise of peers. Their words are addressed to God publicly, but the real audience is other people. So others would be impressed by their devotion and their passion and their words to gain praise of people. If you want others to notice you because of what you're doing religiously, that is going to reap some human reward. And it says here that they have received it. That's all they're going to get. He directs them to pray in secret. We're going to unpack that in a little bit. It doesn't mean that Jesus is against or the scriptures are against public and corporate prayer. You see, that's fundamental to the people of God. Often when they think about prayers, often it was actually thinking about the corporate gathering of the people of God to praying together in the way that they prayed publicly together. So it's important to learn as a church how to corporately pray, not only in the formal gatherings on Sunday morning, but as we gather the church to pray. So when we call prayer meetings as a church, it's as important as the gathering on Sunday morning. And so we expect and we hope and we long for our church to show up because this is how we come before the Lord. And so we practice that together. And that's when they said the prayer, that's what they did. Hypocrites, though, they would say one thing, and then one thing externally at least, and then they would live a completely different way when no one else is looking. So he's against the, the motivation. He's not against public gatherings for prayer or praying out loud. Sometimes Christians, and this is one thing I think I, say, I want to say about hypocrites and religious hypocrisy. I, I think sometimes we wrongly think that hypocrisy is doing something that we don't feel like doing. That's how a lot of people think what Christian hypocrisy is. Like, I don't feel like going to church today. And so if I go to church today, I'm a hypocrite. Or I don't feel like using my time for the Lord, but I'm going to do it. Or I don't, so I shouldn't do it because if I do it and I don't feel like it, then it's hypocrisy. No, this is not that. That's not actually hypocrisy. And I think I need to correct that sense where there's a gap in our feelings. Because even think about your marriage. Sometimes doing, you don't feel like doing the right thing in your marriage. But doing the right thing in your marriage, even when you don't feel like it, is a sign of fidelity. It's a sign of honoring your covenant. That's faithfulness. And so doing the right thing, even when your feelings don't quite align yet, is a sign of wrestling that's going to happen in our Christian life. It's going to happen in all of our relationships. It's a sign if it's faithfully done out of maturity, but the hypocrisy isn't the gap between our feelings and our actions. It's the gap between what you're saying or doing publicly and what truly is you when you're only by yourself. That's hypocrisy. That's the main thing he's trying to address here in the three fundamental areas of the Jewish person's life. They, if you were to ask what their three main spiritual disciplines were in their time, they would have said giving, alms, praying, and fasting. Those are fundamental to who they are. And the, the verse that guides all of these three is chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father 
who is in heaven. Hypocrites don't really love God, even though their words are expressing love of God. They don't really love the kingdom. They don't really love God's name. They love themselves. And they get that love from other people. This is especially true. I think this application may be very poignant for those of us who have public platforms and religious services or religious institutions like the church where me or our worship team or our elders or any MC or anyone who's who takes this public stage and directs or informs, we, we may be tempted and we need to deeply hear this warning for those of us who are in platforms like this. And so elders of our church, small group leaders of our church, Sunday school teachers in our church, we all need to deeply hear this. It's a warning for those of us who are in public platforms. But the temptation here is not just for those who have public stage platforms. This is a warning against the kind of religious professionalism where you're doing things, maybe not necessarily to get praise in the same way it's being expressed here, but maybe even just to get people off your back. <laughs> or maybe just to gain approval for family or friends or culture. Consider these kinds of points, maybe to, to unearth this and how it exists in our hearts. If prayer is only practice in your life, when you are in formal church things, and it's never a part of your personal life at all, this warning may be for you. Where prayer is never there for you, privately, personally. It only is practiced when you get together with other Christians or in the spaces with other Christians. Or maybe this is a warning for you if in your prayers, you see a big discrepancy in your language or your passion or the content of your prayer. And so you'll pray for that justice issue with other people, but you never pray that thing by yourself because your prayers are primarily by yourself only about your needs. That's something I've had to learn over time that it's easy for me to pray publicly for things that are not relating to me, but so many of my private prayers are primarily only about me. That's, a, that's actually a recognized hypocrisy I saw in my life that I needed to grow in. One of the biggest things, I, I want to kind of unearth this for some of us and just lay this out there. Sometimes there's a discrepancy in our passion or our language. Sometimes when you're praying with people, uh, sometimes it's just nervousness, right? And I just want to say this because some of us, have a, we're just not used to saying things out loud in front of other people, let alone praying in front of other people. I remember being a young Christian in college and we would have prayer circles and it, it would be like three people away from me and I know it's coming to me. It's like two people and the only prayer I got is, Jesus, give me anything. Give me some words because I don't know what to say. I don't, I don't even know how to talk to you yet. And I don't want to sound like an idiot. And I don't want to sound, I, it, that's the worry I have. Sometimes it's just nervousness. And so and some of us get used to this pattern of like saying like filler words in our prayers because we're just nervous, right? And so you have that person who just prays, Lord, Father, God, Lord, Father, God, Jesus, baby, Jesus, Lord, God, or God. We just say all these things before every sentence because we're just filling in because we're nervous, Right? And there's way better ways to pray than just repeating. Jesus knows who he is. You don't need to keep saying every sentence, right? And I understand there's nervousness as a part of that. And so if you're growing and you're trying to pray and there's nervousness, I'm not trying to point out that. That's, that's actually you growing and trying to be mature. But if there's this way that you pray publicly that has no connection to your personal private life, maybe there is a bit of hypocrisy that you need to see there. There's a way in which we can fake things in our prayer, saying good things, praying about good things that we do not care about at all in our life. And again, it's worth repeating again. This is, 
This is not pointing out the, the gap between our feelings. That may be a wrestle of maturity. This is a gap between you trying to be perceived a certain way publicly that doesn't represent any of your private life at all. And so many of us over time would admit that this becomes a temptation and practice for us. And the way I saw that in my own heart is I'm willing to pray publicly for things that I never pray privately because my private prayers are selfish. And why is it that I'm so willing to pray publicly for something which doesn't represent itself in my private life? Second, not. So it is not for human approval. It is not this practice of professionalism in our religiosity. It is also not a transaction with God. Prayer is not a transaction with God. Look at verse 7. And when you pray... Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. When he mentions Gentiles here, he's not referencing necessarily their nationality or ethnicity. It's those who do not share the Jewish spiritual background and theology and framework. And so he's thinking about religiosity in the world at large. Remember, for actually much of the human history, in fact, much of the world today still doesn't divide the, the, the spiritual and everyday life. They see the intimacy and connection. It's only after the enlightenment that we see this dichotomy. But most of the world still, even today, sees integration. So even non-Jewish people were very religious in their life. Prayer was a regular part of their life. And these non-Jewish Gentiles prayed, even though they prayed to different deities and they prayed in different ways, they kind of share this same fundamental principle about what prayer is. Prayer is a transaction. It is a quid pro quo kind of statement to get from God. So prayer is a means to get, to appease, maybe even manipulate God or bribe God. And this is certainly fundamental to the theology and mythology of Greeks and Romans of their time, where you have this regional God and you had to do certain things, otherwise they'll be angry at you. And they will deny you harvest or they'll curse your family or personally even go against you. That's, that's what prayer was like in all the pagan world, depending on no matter where you were. It's a transaction to appease, to bribe, manipulate, to guard yourself from their anger. So prayer is more like an incantation to get gods to grant your desires. And the danger is we can, as followers of Jesus, even treat the Lord's prayer as some kind of incantation. And we just kind of mindlessly use the Lord's Prayer. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't memorize it. We shouldn't recite it. It can be used meaningfully. I want to encourage us to do that. But also it can turn into some kind of weird Christian incantation in which we try to extract things from God. That's never the purpose of prayer with the living God. If you want to, in the Gentile world, get God to get what you want, you have to come with the right words. You have to say, do it with the right energy. You have to do it at the right length of time. You have to bring the right offerings. And sadly, this is kind of sometimes how we relate to God in the church as a transaction. So let me, let me give some examples maybe to unearth how this is still within our own practice of prayer. Some of us, and this is really awesome, actually, the way that I, I learned to pray was actually learning to pray scripture. And that's actually very helpful because you're using words from God and letting it shape how you speak to God. 
But sometimes you can do that as some kind of like, well, if I say this, then God has to, you know, answer it a certain way. Because I'm saying the exact thing he's answered before, so it has to happen in my life. That's, that's transactional. It's subtle, right? You actually can't even tell sometimes when you're praying or hearing other people pray. That's why it's fundamentally about a heart issue that we're going to unpack in the third point. But if you just quote scripture that you don't ever quote in any other way, maybe you're trying to get from God. Or maybe if you pray longer or you pray louder, God will hear you. I remember hearing once uh, from one of our pastors, he was a part of a very uh, fervent uh, Christian uh, fellowship and they had a prayer meeting. And at this prayer meeting, one of the leaders came after they had been praying for three hours and say, you're not praying strong enough. You got to pray through the night. And they basically manipulate them to stay all night long. And in that thinking, it's like, well, if you pray stronger or you give more time, well, then God will hear. No, that's transactional. And it's nothing against the length or, or the volume, actually. But if your desire is to use those things so that God will pay attention to you better, then that you're viewing it as transactional. Maybe prayer for you is just about bargaining with God. All of us have prayed this prayer, right? You're in the midst of some deep situation where you don't know how to get out of it. You say, God, I will give up this sin if you just get me out of this situation. All of us, be honest, right? We've all prayed that prayer at some time in our life, even before we knew Jesus, maybe, or maybe even after we knew Jesus. Jesus, I will give up this if you give me this. If I will give up gluten if you get me married, right? Please answer this prayer. Right, we've done something like that. That's bargaining with God. That's, that's transactional. Prayer we're going to look at this in the next few weeks, doesn't inform God what he does not know, neither is it trying to get him to give us something he's reluctant to give if it's actually glorifying to him and good for us. God doesn't actually need our prayer, but he ordains prayer as a means by which he works in this world. It's one of the ways that he allows his will to be carried out in this world. It's important it's not bargaining with God. It's not trying to get from God what he doesn't want to give us. Or maybe, and I think I need to say this because this exists. I see this all over the place at times. And it may not be as common in our church, uh, but I see remnants of this in our church at times. And I hear people say this. So I want to directly correct this. I, I think some people have this transactional view of prayer and they kind of, you can't tell it's there because they couch it in religious words like you have to have more faith and that's that's where it's subtle right faith is fundamental to prayer but the way in which people couch that and if you unearth that some more you realize that's just a matter of transaction but you've heard this especially true in prosperity gospel churches but this exists in all our, our churches to some degree or another you know if god hasn't given you what you want you don't have enough faith let me not say it in that, those words, but you've heard versions of that. So faith, and think about what faith means in that context. Faith fundamentally is about the object of our faith. It's placed in God. But when you say you don't have enough faith, what you're saying is you don't have enough time in prayer. You don't have enough passion. You don't have enough. So it's about you. God will grant your prayers if you're strong enough, if you're loud enough. In some circles, you can even hear from, from, from people who teach, like, if God hasn't answered you yet, you're not praying enough the right way. Your, your faith is too weak. And if you had more faith, then God would give you what you're asking for. 
this is where it's subtle. It's hard to discern at times, right? The Holy Spirit does convict. The Holy Spirit does prompt. Faith is fundamental to prayer. God says, knock, and he will answer. Seek. And he, he calls us to be bold in that, and that requires our faith. But I think when people ask the question, try and position it, where they question, did you have enough faith? That's why God's not answering you. They're weaponizing this idea of faith, which is wrong because it's about you, and they're manipulating people spiritually. So God answers you based upon your personal passion. And if you have enough passion, then God will act according to what you want. Sadly, many people, and sadly, it's usually the most vulnerable who are exploited and crushed by that kind of spiritual manipulation. It's a half-truth. That's why it's easy to believe. God wants to answer, but the problem in answering isn't you often. And so it crushes people who get manipulated into this, well, if you had enough faith. And that's viewing God as a transaction. Faith is crucial. Again, it's not disconnected. It's fundamental, but it's not an inward faith on you and how much energy and how much effort you put in. It's about who you're placing your faith in matters. And think about this. This is why I need to say this. Because it's usually manipulative. If you asked a certain way, then God will answer. Because sometimes we're even asking for things that God said he wants to answer. Like he wants to save our family members who we're interceding for. And someone will say, well, if you prayed hard enough, then your cousin would be saved. That's manipulation though. Think about it. Who was the most full of the Holy Spirit on earth? Who had the most faith ever on earth? This is where your Sunday school answer is right. Jesus. <laughs> it's Jesus, right? I'm not trying to trick you. Jesus had the most Holy Spirit and most faith in his earthly life. But you know what Jesus heard no? Think about what he asked in Matthew 26. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and, two, and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death, remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. If there's another way than the cross to save, let's do it, God. Let's do it, Father. He prayed that. If there's another way other than receiving the full wrath on the cross, I want to do that. And his answer was no. And it's not because Jesus lacked faith. It's not because he didn't have the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the Father had a very different plan and purpose. No combination of words, no amount of passion. Jesus sweat blood in his prayers. That's, that's passionate. No amount of personal effort would change this. But you can think about how people would, who would say, well, if you had enough faith, God will give you what, you what you're asking for. That's, that's manipulation. That's a transactional view of prayer. God's love for Jesus was never in question. God's love for him was never in doubt. It was never lacking. But the no to his prayer was because he had a better plan. He had a plan to exalt him through death. He had a plan to save humanity through death. He had a plan to redeem and defeat death itself. And so prayer is not a transaction with God. And yeah, maybe we don't do it exactly like the Gentiles do here in this text, but you can begin to see, I hope you begin to see how that's 
seeped into how so many of us interact in prayer. And we need to unearth that and see that in our own hearts. It's not a transaction. Prayer is, so it's not for human approval. It is not transactional with God. It is fundamentally, it is about an intimate relationship with a loving father. Prayer is an intimate, an expression of intimacy and relationship with a loving father. Two things I want to say about that. Look at verses six and eight again. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not be like them, jumping to verse eight, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Kind of gives us two things to think about when it comes to relationship. Verse six says, the father who is in secret. This is one of the phrases he repeats throughout this section. The father sees in secret forgiving and prayer and fasting. The father sees and rewards in secret. And it doesn't mean that he's not there in the public. The father is there in public. He's everywhere. But he's saying, I think, there's something special about private, personal prayer. When it's just you and God, that doesn't depend on the religious institution. It doesn't depend on anyone else. It doesn't depend on a pastor. It doesn't depend on your spouse who's more spiritual than you. If it's just you and God, nothing else. There's something deep and profound when it's just you and God. Think about your most deep and profound relationships in your life. And usually you probably don't have more than one to three of those. When you hang out with those one to three people where these friendships are deep, do you need anything else to be together? Anything else? Do you need a task to be together? Do you need another person that, you know, is the kind of connector between the two of you? No, because all you need is that other person. We all have relationships and the opposite end where you need a task where you need someone else with that relationship to thrive. You ever had the situation where you have this group of friends, maybe a large group of friends, and there is that one or two connectors who always brings everyone together. We all have relationships like this. And then sometimes you end up hanging out with one of the friends in that group when you're, that connector friend isn't there and you're just hanging out for a while, maybe you're just watching the game together, or you're having a meal. And like, some people had to leave and it's just the two of you left and you realize after some time, like you, you know, do pleasantries and you catch up a little bit and you're like, we have nothing in common. I don't have anything else to talk to you about. I don't even want to talk to you that much, actually. You ever have those relationships? We all have relationships like that where the only thing that brought us together is a task or the common connector friend. And when that's gone, it doesn't exist anymore. But we all have friendships too, where you don't need anything else. Just being there with no schedule, no plan, no one else. Where it's just that kind of deep friendship. A lot of us, we get alone with God and it becomes clear to us how far we're away from him. And so we do everything we can to avoid it. That's why we run away from that. That's why we don't want to sit in silence. That's why we don't pray privately anymore because once you try and pray privately, you begin to realize, I haven't talked to God, just me and him, in like 20 years. Because what happened is, over time, we developed a relationship with God that required mutual friends, like the church or your small group 
or your pastor or your spouse. Or you can get together and you can pray to God when you're doing the same task. And so we can do this even with missions. I, I remember seeking in my heart why the disconnect existed when I returned from one of our trips with to support missionaries in Thailand. And I was being willing to be there and like connect to God and feel intimacy. And why it doesn't exist at home is because I can rely on praying for missionaries without with other missionaries. But does it exist in me? We, don't, we, we avoid that. And that's why during my sabbatical earlier this year, one of my most important things I needed to do was get away for an extended period of time in silence. I can tell you that was a very difficult time because one of the things I learned and I'm still wrestling in my own heart, and that's why I needed a sabbatical, is because I can relate to God out of just being a pastor instead of just being his son. And there's a way in which I can be God's child, which only exists because I'm doing the task of pastoring instead of just being his child. And that's not a relationship with God. That's having a job. And that, that, that freaks me out a little bit. Because when I get to heaven, I'm not going to be able to say to him, well, why should, what have you done with your time? Well, I was a pastor. No, that's self-righteousness. I don't want to have that kind of relationship with my father. And some of us, even if you're not a pastor, a religious leader, you really begin to realize, why is there no silence with you and God? Because you're afraid of it. Because you realize once you get to that point, your entire relationship with God existed because you were raising your kids. Because you were praying for your, your mother who you deeply wanted to come to Jesus and that mother has died and now you have no relationship. Because it existed on a task or other people and you stripped that away. Do you have that with God? Because what God wants is you. A relationship. Strong connection to him. Right? It's, it's awkward. Right? If you get away from the tasks of church and religious things and you get away from other people, even get away from the church, what do you have with him? When you don't have other people distracting you or other gatherings to kind of form how you relate to God, what do you have with them? There's a way to relate with God that is in secret, that is deeply intimate. And God, I think uniquely, our relationship with God uniquely exists there. That's different. And it's not to diminish or discourage or disparage the public, but it has to exist from that private place. In fact, if there's a big disconnect from our private place in our public place, that maybe we're treating God transactionally or maybe we're getting the approval of men. In fact, that's one of the th things I have to think about my prayer. Why do I pray a certain way publicly, which I don't? And maybe I'm just looking for the, at least the appearance of being spiritual. What, what, what is that, Jesus? What is, why does that exist in my heart? If you realize this, my prayer is that you begin to see, because all of us, to some degree or another, wrestle with these things. I think Jesus knew, as we were struggling with prayer, this is where we start. We have to admit that we all struggle with these at least two fundamental knots in some way. That's why he said, he pointed out these two things, because for all of time, humanity will wrestle with these things. If you realize this, I pray that this series is something you deeply engage with. You don't just think about it on Sunday morning for 30 to 40 minutes when we're talking about it. You begin to dig in and pray and, and seek the Lord and admit and seek privacy. You know how you get out of the awkwardness with someone? I don't know if you ever, maybe you started high school this 
you know, this past week or you started college or you started a new job, you know, it's initially very awkward, right? It's very strange because you don't have comfort level. You don't, ha you don't know how to give benefit of doubt because you don't know that person yet. You know how you get over awkwardness with other people? You spend more time with them. You have lunch with them. You have coffee with them. You, you, you walk to class together. You spend time getting to know them. You ask them about them and you want to listen to what they're like and you begin to share parts of you. That's exactly how we gain intimacy and overcome the awkwardness with our Heavenly Father. That we begin to talk to Him that we begin to try and listen through his word and through the Holy Spirit. This is what he says about himself. And you begin to wrestle with, I, I don't quite, if he says he's abundant in love and just even being honest, that like God, I know that intellectually, I don't feel that right now. Help me to bridge this. Help me understand what barriers exist between what you say about yourself and my human experience and help me understand that and help me experience you like you say you want to relate to me. And having that conversation, one of the things I'll encourage you to do, you know, the Lord's Prayer, as we're going to look at the next few weeks, uh, it could be misused as kind of like an incantation to get from God, a pray that we begin to overcome that. It does not to say that it can't be good to memorize and recite and use it in our prayer life. One of the things I'm used doing the next uh, six to eight weeks that we're in this series is using a, a phrase a day. Uh, for the week to guide my prayers. And so our Father who art in heaven and that day, letting that kind of guide a section of my prayer. And then moving on each day of the week. You can use that in all kinds of ways. But maybe even just using the Lord's Prayer as a framework for your daily pursuit of God during this series. A second explanation of this intimacy and relationship is not only that uh, we have to understand that it's a relationship that is expressed when no one else is around. We also need to see that we have a very attentive father. This is a relationship with a father who is deeply attentive to us. Look at verse 8. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask. So what, this is one thing corrective, because non-followers of the living God think they need to inform God. No, our God knows. God knows everything. He knows before we even ask him. Now, one of the things you may be wondering, and we're going to try and answer some of these uh, questions that we struggle with, is why pray, why ask when God already knows? We're going to answer some of these things for our series. Because it is about relationship. Fundamentally, what we want in glorifying God isn't just that we're busy, but that we enjoy, that we know, that we're near the Heavenly Father that loves us, that created us, that wants to be with us. He knows before we ask. Meaning you don't have to prove yourself to the Father. If it's something you, he knows you need, it's good for you and it glorifies him, he knows. But he wants us to come to him because it's an expression of dependence and relationship. He's watching us attentively every day. So he doesn't need to intellectually understand our situation. We're not informing him because he doesn't know. But we're conversing with him because it's an expression of who we are. God the Father here in verse 8 is he's not a skilled therapist who needs to understand your story in order to analyze you and give you the right prescription because of his expertise in analyzing humans. No, that's not how he relates to us. He knows your needs. He knows your hurts because he's a loving father. So when we're praying, it's not informational, it's relational. 
it's personal, not a therapist. Again, I'm not disparaging therapy. But the father isn't trying to get information that he doesn't have. He's expressing his love to us through that intimacy. And I see this grace. And I only got to see this as I'm trying to, in my human weakness, love my kids. Because my kids, and if you have ever worked with kids, had kids, they want so many things, don't they? They want endless amounts of things. They ask for so many things. In my best moments, I'm actually paying attention to them. <laughs> in my, my more common moments, I'm on my phone, to be honest. And they're like, Dad, 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 what? I'm scrolling through Instagram right now. What, don't bother me. That's more common. My kids, they're, they're young enough where their general needs and what's best for them, at this point of their life, I kind of know. There gets to a certain point where I won't know. So even their career... I think once they get to that point where they're like, you know, 13, 14, and they're wrestling about what to do about their gifting and stuff, like, I, I'm not going to necessarily know what's best for them at that point. It's going to be more conversational, understanding. I have to investigate more. But at this point in their life, before they're 10 years old, your main goal, like before six years old, your main goal is to keep them alive, right? So that's the main thing. So you kind of know what they're going to ask for before they ask it because the, the needs are kind of minimal. I'm going to have to grow in that as they get a little older. And you guys who've raised youth and teenagers can help me and Jeanette through that season. But there's oftentimes I deny my kids stuff, right? If you've worked even in camp tunes or worked in Sunday school, the kids are going to ask you for something. You're, you're going to eventually have to exercise the glorious no, right? You have to say no. And you know what? Sometimes my kids will say to me when I say no to them, you don't love me, dad. They actually say it. Man, they're so bold. You never give me anything, Dad. Oh, yeah? What's all that stuff in your room? That's all going to be garbage at the end of today now. It's all going to be going away now. I never get you anything. Look at your room. That's what I'm thinking in my head. I say out loud, too. But in that moment, and I realize this, because their needs generally are pretty easy to meet, generally, at this age. Even in the expression, there is a sense of selfishness that does need to be worked out there and, you know, a love of stuff that all of us wrestle with. But what they really want is my presence. They, they want to sense and believe that their father, who they believe loves them, will actually care for them. Here's what I've learned. They don't really need a yes to everything. They definitely don't need that. But what they need and what they really want is my attention and my presence and to know that I'm interested in what's going on in their life. And so even when they're asking for something I don't want to give to them, I have to realize it's not fundamentally about that at times. Because sometimes I'm going to say I have to say no to that. But they need to know whether I say yes or no in whatever it is that they have my attention, they have my presence, they, ha they believe I have the best interest for them, and it's expressed by how I re relate to them. And so you know how, how many times kids, especially when they're young, it is sad to me that this is going to probably stop soon. So I have to pay attention to stewarding this season well. When they're young, you know how kids are like, Dad, look, look at this. Look, look, look. You know how many times they say look to you and, and you're like, no, stop, I'm busy, right? But that season is so amazing because they still look to you. And that season won't always be there. In fact, it shouldn't be there. If they're still saying, look at me, Dad, and they're like 60 years old and I'm a great-grandfather, hopefully, then I'm, that's something wrong if they're asking in that way. But like, Right? And I'm saying to them, they say, look, look, look. I'm, and I'm scrolling on my phone or maybe 
you know, no, I'm reading my Bible, which is not true at the time, right? Because they want to be seen. They want to live in a world where I see them, where I love them. And we are the same, ultimately, with our Heavenly Father. Sometimes I think we wrongly think that if God just gave us everything we asked for, then our life would be good. Do you know how many ways that God has loved us by not giving us what we asked for? <laughs> I, I, we never count those prayer requests, right? But how many ways that God has not given us what we asked, and that is glorifying to him and ultimately good for us. How many have asked us, how many of us have prayed, oh, I love this person, I'm going to be forever with them. If God answered that prayer, that would have been the worst thing ever. I think about all those people in your life, or you want that thing, and that thing would have destroyed you. Think about all the ways that God has blessed you by not answering your prayers. We think sometimes that if God said yes to everything we're asking for, that would make us happy. But ultimately, he knows what we need and what we ultimately need is that he sees us and he knows us and we feel that presence from him. And so we begin to understand his yeses and nos differently. At the end of the day, I think fundamentally what we need is to believe that he sees us. Just like an earthly father sees his son and daughter. I think we forget all the times he said no that turned out good. And sometimes we forget all the ways that he said yes, which also turned out for our good. But what we need to see is that intimate relationship again. Not as a task that I, I did my 30 minutes of prayer today, but what he wants is your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. And that's expressed in personal secret prayers at times. Friends, we all struggle with prayer. And so one of the ways I'm going to give you a moment to just relate to the Father in response to this word is just to admit that. There's that words in uh, Luke's gospel, which covers the Lord's prayer a little differently than Matthew. And that's where you get the phrase, teach us to pray. And maybe that's just the, the word you say right now. Would you by yourself, or maybe you're sitting with a close friend or family member and you don't know how to pray that, but you would just ask them, would you pray that I learn to pray? Would you be honest enough to verbalize your struggles or maybe even if you have the conviction of where you see how you've mistreated prayer, you just admit that. Father's not going to love you less because you say, Father, I've related to you transactionally. He's not going to beat you down because of that. And he wants you to see that and admit that. That's developing a relationship with him. And so would you take a moment either with intimate friends that you're sitting with or in your private moment before we sing the next songs, just ask him, teach me to pray. Would you let the Holy Spirit use those words to guide your prayer in this next little bit? Father, teach us to pray so that we would be near you, relating to you as Abba, Father. Teach us to pray as a church so that we would intercede on behalf of one another that overflows from an intimacy with you. Father, help us to be vulnerable where we need to be vulnerable. We ask your spirit to do that because it takes humility and vulnerability to admit where we've prayed wrongly. Out of getting from you or out of just looking a certain way to others, I pray you would draw us near to you, renew us in intimacy with you. You answer this prayer, Lord. We know that you long to answer this prayer. 
for all my friends who are listening here and for us as a community here in the city, when we be a dependent people relating to you in the secret places as well as our public gatherings and places we gather as your people. Amen.